Welcome to Public Health Out Loud, Public Health for the Public. Hi, I'm Dr. Jim McDonald. I'm Dr. Phil Chan. Welcome, everyone. And Dr. Chan, it's great to have this episode guest today. We're here with our own Dr. Bandy of the Rhode Island Department of Health. Dr. Bandy is a Rhode Island legend in Rhode Island epidemiology, been with the department for a very, very long time. A lot of wisdom is going to be shared today. So I'm excited about Dr. Bandy's episode. Dr. Chan, what do you think about Dr. Bandy coming on the, on the show today? Happy about it? Tell me your story. Well, Dr. Bandy is uh, one of my mentors. So thank you, Dr. Bandy, for joining us. And I think you said it best, just a wealth of public health uh, experience. And, you know, I still remember the first one of the first uh, days of the pandemic here in Rhode Island. And Dr. Bandy went on vacation for a day, as uh, she is certainly allowed. And uh, we had like a nursing home outbreak and people were, you know, getting really sick. And uh, I just remember that day and I still call Dr. Bandy. I think she answered from somewhere on vacation. But uh, we are truly lucky to have Dr. Bandy. So Dr. Bandy, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, when did you first start working at the Department of Health here? You know, I, as an older person, I have a lot of stories to tell, but uh, let me first start by thanking you guys for asking me to participate in this podcast. And uh, let me also say how much I appreciate what the two of you are doing to spread the word and control misinformation about all things public health, as well as share a lot of information. So thank you for that. If I had to say one thing about myself, and I'm going to talk about myself for at some length, if you don't mind, because it builds towards understanding who I am and why I'm here in public health. So if it's one thing that I have to say about myself, it's that I've been very fortunate all my life. So I was born and raised by very progressive parents in a young post-British colonial India. After a private school education, I had the privilege of attending the very best medical school in the country. Good fortune again, Christian Medical College, Bellor, where I made lifelong friendships. This was followed by a pediatric residency and Just to explain, public health coursework is called preventive and social medicine in India, and it's baked into the curriculum. It has equal status with subjects like medicine, surgery, OBGYN. And I had some truly inspirational teachers and long years of field work in village environments, which taught me very early on the importance of social determinants of health that we talk about all the time. So that decade long training between 68 and 78 that's 1968, not 1868, was incredibly stimulating. I had the opportunity to routinely manage patients with infectious diseases that are now in the history books, thanks to vaccines and basic sanitation. So I'm talking about diphtheria, polio, neonatal tetanus, hepatitis A and B. I even managed a a woman in labor who had cholera, typhoid, malaria, shigella, H flu, dengue, tuberculosis. And guess what? I even experienced some of these infections myself. So there are many, many stories to tell, but I'll leave it there. So I have great faith in vaccines. Great yeah. experience in vaccines too. It's, Keep going, Dr. Manny. This is and, great. And diseases, yeah. Yeah. So soon after that uh, experience, I uh, sort of had exhausted uh, what India had to offer by way of training. And I was very young because in the British system, you go to medical school when you're 16. And so by 25, 26, I was already bored and had a ton of experience. So I moved to the UK for two years and completed training in neonatal medicine. Then I moved to the US and completed another two years of pediatric residency at uh, the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, which was required in order to practice medicine in the US. 
then the family moved to Virginia and I worked at a, a public, I, I stumbled on after a few years in practice, I stumbled on the fact that they, the Virginia Department of Health actually had practice locations in local health departments. And I worked for five years with them. This was a high volume clinic serving uh, low income populations. And that was, that was a very, very interesting experience. Then the family moved again to Rhode Island. And I took that opportunity to take a year out to complete a master of public health at the Harvard School of Public Health, good fortune again, with a focus on healthcare management and practice. So this was a life transforming experience and rocketed me into a career in public health. So finally, I was able to weave the knowledge and experience from the field that I had uh, into thinking epidemiologically. And that's the core science of public health practice. It's the art of using data and science to inform policy that is then implemented through social strategies and which require complex partnerships in the community to be successful. So that's a little bit about me. Yeah, that was great, Dr. Benny. Thank you so much. So we are going to talk about the pandemic eventually today, but I want to go back in time a little bit. And maybe you could just tell a quick story a little about your first outbreak you ever managed and what was that like? So any thoughts on your first outbreak? So the reason I was recruited actively to the Department of Health was because we had a uh, rabies epizootic, which is an epidemic among um, among uh, wild animals. So there was a raccoon rabies epizootic happening, impending arrival in Rhode Island. That along with several other emergencies uh, like measles breakthrough cases were happening in large numbers. And there was MDR-TB, which is multiple drug resistant TB happening in the prisons in New York uh, at that time. So that's how I got recruited. I joined. I'd actually stepped into the building to write a paper and they just grabbed me and I, and I was lucky enough to that fall to join straight out of school. So the first uh, outbreak started in Rhode Island in January of 1994 when the first rabid raccoon was confirmed. So it was trial by fire as I'd come straight out of school. The governor had appointed a statewide rabies control board and uh, we had to set up systems for wildlife capture, for surveillance testing at the state health lab. City and town governments had to be educated about the new threat. Animal control officers in cities and towns had to be trained. They had to be vaccinated. Uh, a public education campaign was embarked upon. At that time, mainly through press releases, highway billboards, pamphlets. Uh, the main messages were to vaccinate pets and avoid contact with wildlife. For our part, we had to expand public health nursing capacity and investigator capacity to receive and triage the almost 2,000 animal bite calls per year that we were expected to receive to assess human health risk for rabies exposure to wildlife and to domestic pets who are in, indirectly exposed through contact with the wildlife. So we had to case manage the reports. We had to assure that everyone that needed post-exposure vaccination with the rabies vaccine, they had a timely and barrier-free access to treatment for what is a 100% fatal disease. So I recall visiting every emergency room and Grand Rounds opportunity in the state, physically driving there with slight carousel in hand, uh, because there was no Zoom in those days and uh, it, it, there was the only way we could communicate. Uh, no email even, uh, no Google, no internet. So providers were very grateful for the support that uh, our public health nurses provide uh, by way of case management services for their patients who are exposed 
uh, and they're sort of managed outside the acute care setting. So that, that was really the first big outbreak that I had to manage. Yeah, no, uh, no email, no telephone. Whatever did we do? No, we uh, had telephones. We had telephones. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't that long ago. That's great, Doctor Manny. Thank you, Swatian. No smartphones. Thank you for that. Let me ask you this. I mean, you've managed, I would dare say, hundreds, hundreds of outbreaks in your career. I'm just wondering if there's, you know, one or two that that stood out to you, and and maybe I can even ask you a personal question here. You can feel free to ignore this, but. You know, have you ever gotten one of the diseases you were actually investigating before during the course of an outbreak investigation? No, no, not in Rhode Island, no. Uh, so what I got was related to travel abroad or growing up in, in India. When I was in the UK, I did get hepatitis B from a needle stick. So that may count for something. Mm, so this, yes. this was a, a newborn baby. We knew the mother was hepatitis E antigen positive, and I did a femoral stick and managed to impale myself with that needle. Uh, Ouch. But and, uh, luckily, I've recovered, and, and I'm not antigen positive, so I did well. Yes, and just to let our listeners know, hepatitis B, B as in Bob, is one of the viral hepatitis viruses that is commonly uh, transmitted through exposures, which is, uh, which is uh, why we have such great vaccines, and we really strongly recommend vaccinations, which are now uh, routine in childhood. Uh, but Dr. Bandy, what's one of the most memorable outbreak investigations that you've ever done? Let's, uh, let's start there. So I, I can think of a couple that come to mind, which uh, are worth talking about. Of course, there's hundreds and hundreds, and a lot of them are uh, you know, exciting. But here's a couple that illustrate the importance of why we do what we do. So in 2010, uh, we detected a salmonella Zero group Newport. So Salmonella Newport cluster associated with a burger bar. So these, the Salmonella produces diarrheal disease. Uh, we discovered 27 cases that had a genomic pattern that matched, and it was a somewhat rare genomic pattern. So it was very easy to trace it back and pinpoint it. We did a case control study and we found that the tomatoes that the burger bar was serving were the source. So the odds of, of getting disease if you consume the tomatoes, uh, were very high. At the same time, Washington state had a similar outbreak from this uh, rare organism. Food and Drug Administration was able to perform a trace back to the farm of origin for these tomatoes. And they found that there was cow pastures upstream that were, the waste was getting washed into the fields where the tomatoes were being grown. So that was one part of the investigation. We were able to control the, the the contamination source right at that farm where these tomatoes came from in Florida. These are gigantic farms that supply the nation. Most interestingly, however, we found that the slicer that the restaurant was using had some plastic components that were collecting debris and that could not be removed for cleaning. And when you broke that part apart, this, this place was amplifying and concentrating the bacteria resulting in the outbreak. So this part was cultured, it yielded the heavy growth of organism. So as a result, recommendations were made through federal authorities to change the manufacturing standards and specs for the slicer. So indirectly, the small outbreak in Rhode Island influenced industry standards. So that's that, one that comes to mind. That's an interesting story. I mean, one of the things I think you illustrate there too is how a lot of outbreaks are quite frankly, unintentional. I mean. It's a surprise to everybody. You know, this is something where, you know, outbreaks happen. And, and what you learn in one public health outbreak, you can really take that knowledge across the whole country. 
Um, and, and like, you know, that's a good story and a good example of that. If you don't mind, what I'd like to do is shift our conversation a little bit to talk a little bit about the COVID pandemic. And I want to just talk a little bit more about the pandemic because the pandemic has been such a big part of our lives the last two years. And, you know, I know you've been involved with us in Rhode Island Department of Health with the pandemic from the very beginning, um, really even before we had the first case you were involved. So one of the things I'd just like to ask you is what is the first thought that comes to your mind when we reflect on the pandemic? Because you've had a lot of time to think about this a little bit. What is your first thought that comes to mind on this? I am still just amazed at the at the magnitude and the speed of response which we uh, embarked on. I, I could never have imagined that that was possible using an all of government approach in Rhode Island. Uh, the first four to eight weeks within the unit, we were in a, as everybody in the Department of Health was in a frantic scramble, right? We were scaling up resources, staffing up, training, uh, developing a database, developing our lab folks were developing lab testing. Uh, we knew very little about the organism. We had very little support from the feds. And so those first, I'm, I want to say right through the end of March, so our first case was confirmed at the end of February, right through the end of March into early April were, was just a, a, a nightmare. We just worked around the clock day after day after day. And what made it a nightmare is the unknown, right? We didn't know what we were dealing with. We didn't know what we were going to do, but we just forged on. And gradually as testing became available, we understood the disease a little more. And thanks to the leadership at the highest levels of our government, we entered an unconstrained environment where many other work streams picked up the load of work. It wasn't just us at the Rhode Island Department of Health. So, you know, the testing stream expanded, uh, alternative care hospitals were set up, data and analytics blossomed, communications was amazing. Basically you and Dr. Chan stepped in, big way doing communications all around. Uh, so we had this unprecedented massive response and that's what, what, what I'm still in awe of, that we have that kind of capability in the state, just unthinkable. If you think about it, we were 500 staff in, in Department of Health to start with, and then we hired another 600 to do yeah. COVID. Just, just within Department of Health. No, I'm not talking about the other works. Right. No, yeah. Yeah, so more than doubled. It, it's funny, you know, one of the things you got me thinking about, you kind of just stimulated this thought in my mind was, you know, it, it's amazing how fast everything moved in the pandemic. And I think one of the things that's, you know, we all look at the world from a certain lens of our culture. Like, and I think growing up in the United States, where this is a land of fast food where nothing's done quick enough, quite frankly. But when you think about where science brought us in the pandemic, you know, the, the genome of this virus was discovered in days. A test was discovered to detect this virus in weeks. A vaccine was developed in less than a year, as was monoclonal antibody treatment. And then oral antivirals were developed, you know, a little over a year into it. And it's just, it's amazing to me how fast science worked in this um, it was just one of those things that as I reflect on this pandemic, it's one of those things where, you know, one of the things I think that we've seen as a species is the power of science and how quickly things can happen uh, when when people really focus together. Dr. Chan, let me turn that over to you a little bit and see where you want to go with this. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Bandy. And I think just to our listeners out there, I mean, again, Dr. Bandy has really been one of those uh, heroes behind the scenes, uh, really been responsible for conducting overseeing all the outbreak investigations for COVID happening across the state. And you can imagine that there have been, if not thousands, right? So thank you, Dr. Bandy, for all your work. And uh, obviously you've been instrumental during the pandemic. 
let me ask you this. I mean, given your years of experience here in public health and, you know, really haven't seen it all. I mean, you know, this pandemic has been just a game changer in so many different ways. What surprised you about the pandemic? I mean, first off, did you ever think in your life, in your career, that you would ever see a pandemic to the, to the extent that we have for COVID-19. So, I mean, and what surprised you most about all this? So honestly, I am not surprised that this happened. Remember that we went through this uh, in 2003 with the first SARS, the SARS outbreak. So that was the SARS-CoV-1, which uh, spread from Hong Kong to Singapore, to Australia, to Toronto. But because of the transmission dynamics, the we were able to put that genie back in the bottle. Uh, I was terrified at that time because that had a 40% mortality. This was acute SARS like you've never seen before. Uh, we didn't actually have a case in the United States at all. We did a lot of uh, contact investigations and some fever watches, but we didn't actually have a case. So yes, if it happened then, Obviously, it could happen again because not a whole lot of control measures were put in place, uh, you know, at the wet uh, animal markets where these organisms jump from animals to humans. So I wasn't totally surprised that it happened. Um, in fact, I, I was a pleasantly surprised that it wasn't as uh, lethal as the other SARS organism had been. So in, in general, in addition to what I said about how uh, the massiveness of our response, I was pleasantly surprised by how many people in our state have stepped up to serve the cause of the pandemic. So that's the other thing. People came back out of retirement in droves. There were countless volunteers as the National Guard, contract employees, sister state agencies, academic researchers, laboratorians, you name it. Everyone jumped on the bandwagon to take care of the pandemic issues. So, so that that was a bit of a surprise to me because we've never seen anything like this before. But it's that, a, yeah. that's a pleasant surprise. It is a pleasant surprise. It was surprising to me how government would allow that to occur too. I mean, that was one of those things where yeah. this is one of the things I saw in the pandemic was what seemed to be, you know, I'd stopped taking no as an answer and looked at yes as a possibility almost with everything. Um, so let's talk a little bit about so I think we should talk a little bit about the H1N1 because um, H1N1 was a little bit different. H1N1 was an epidemic. We all lived through that. I think it was roughly 2009, 10, 11 timeframe. But how is this pandemic similar or, or maybe even different how you want to take it from the H1N1 epidemic? Um, you know, what, when you think about that in particular, like because H1N1 got our attention for a long time in this country, um, but it was nothing like the pandemic. How, how do you think it was? What, what are your thoughts when you think of that comparison? So that emerged in the spring of 2009. It was a brand new organism, but very similar to traditional flu, right? There was morbidity and mortality was not high. The anxiety was because pregnant women and young children were getting it. Um, there was a small spring wave and then a very high but short-lived fall wave of illness. And then vaccine became available after the second wave. And by 2010 fall, it was just another endemic strain. COVID, however, is like H1N1 on steroids. It's just massive in scope. There's much higher morbidity and mortality. There's constantly evolving genomic patterns, many, many epidemic waves of illness. And there's the constant evolution of science and policies related to mitigation and control measures. And there's a, this is a, has a society-wide impact on every sector and it's not going to go away. It's just massive. 
Dr. B, let me let me ask you this too. I mean, Dr. McDonald just asked you about H1N1. You briefly mentioned about SARS-CoV-1 uh, a number of years ago and the fact that we saw some cases, but it didn't evolve into a full-scale pandemic. Do you have a sense of why SARS-CoV-2 has become such a problem and SARS-CoV-1 uh, was not? Is it something we did different? Is it something that, that was different about the virus? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, so we we actually know very clearly what the differences are here. With the with the COVID one SARS CoV one, the infectious period in the patient starts after the onset of symptoms. It's not before, so there is no silent transmission. A person actually feels sick and is noticeably symptomatic, and then they start transmitting. So it's quite easy to spot these cases and control them. You can put them in isolation, and they don't spread. And then some of these places like Singapore and Hong Kong did an amazing job, as did Toronto. They did spectacular job with WHO support and CDC support to control these small blooms that happened in so many places. So it was really that transmission dynamic that is the difference between this SARS and the old SARS. This one is impossible to control because people are spreading it with no symptoms. Well, let me ask you this, Dr. Bandy. thinking way back to the very beginning, at this point, totally agree with you, there's obviously no way that we can control this now. Uh, but thinking back to the very beginning, could we have controlled it? Do you think it was ever feasible? Uh, hard to say, but I would think no, because uh, simply because of the fact people didn't know they had it. And, and this stuff spreads like wildfire, especially in densely populated communities, such as Wuhan, where people are packed into apartment buildings. It started small and it had already become massive before the health authorities realized something was wrong. So, you know, I think as we, as we wind down a little bit, the pandemic has become endemic. So in your opinion, how long do you think we're gonna be living with this, you know, endemic, if you will? So here's the deal. The virus is now actually endemic even in wildlife species. They don't suffer symptoms, but for example, deer populations, they have SARS, COVID-2. So this means that we can never put this, uh, control this virus, that there's not going to be our, any ability to do that. So it's likely here to stay forever and it's likely to cause disruption and instability for years and years to come. So we will have to adapt around it with our mitigation measures. And really we have to constantly seek better vaccines. We, I mean the scientists and provide longer lasting immunity. Uh, and ideally a generic a vaccine that is generic to all mutations is going to be the solution to this. So I do, as you know, and I've mentioned this, uh, as you know, I have a great faith in the tried and tested power of vaccines to control diseases. It's primary prevention uh, in public health that's going to get us through here. You think we'll ever get to a situation where COVID is like polio, where it's really an eliminated disease? Do you think that'll ever happen? We'll have to see, but that'll all depend on, on the, uh, the strength of the vaccines that we produce. Yeah, it, it seems unlikely to me. I feel like we're dealing more with something like strep throat where we're going to be just dealing with it forever. It just feels like this is not just a new disease, but it's to feel like it's a it's a permanent disease is what I'm thinking. Yeah, it'll be more know. like flu. If we're lucky, it'll be more like flu. There you go. Well, you know, I think we've kind of come to the end of our time together. Believe it or not, it went by really quick for me. So it's been fun to talk to Dr. Bandy. 
who's one of the Rhode Island Department of Health epidemiologists, uh, actually our state epidemiologist, leads us in many ways in this regard. It's been fun to chat with you about less who you are, your career in medicine, and then your experience with some of the outbreaks you've managed. Um, and I think that's one of the things that epidemiologists are really good at doing is managing outbreaks. And one of those things we've seen is the pandemic still continues, even in its endemic form. We're still managing. It's a different form of management at this point than it's ever been. One of our traditions at Public Health Out Loud, though, is we close our episodes with the final word from Dr. Chan. Dr. Chan, what's the final word for today's episode? Yeah, thank you, Dr. McDonald. And Dr. Bandy, thank you again so much for uh, joining us. And thank you for all your work uh, in addressing the pandemic uh, at the Department of Health. So in closing, I do want to leave folks with a moment of Zen to consider throughout the rest of your day. And here it is from uh, the Buddha. Conquer anger with non-anger. Conquer badness with goodness. Conquer meanness with generosity. Conquer dishonesty with truth. Thank you all and be well. I want to thank Stephanie Menders, our executive producer. I want to thank Carl Stone, our technical director. I'm Dr. Jim McDonald. Have a good and keep up the great.